If you haven't already got a seat, you may want to get a seat. Uh, it's your beer. Should we move a bit closer? Yeah, sure. We're going to come to you. Okay. Grab a seat. So we're sort of into the final hour-ish of this symposium. Uh, I feel like I've got my breath back after that incredible piece of danger music. Over the next half hour, maybe 40 minutes, we'll see how we go. We're going to sort of open up the discussion, um, partly to yourself. So we have a roving mic or two, which we'll liberally pass around. But also with our guest artists to my left, your right, um, one of whom you've already seen in action just now, Eric Demetrio, uh, to my immediate uh, left. To his left is Danae Valenza. We have Camilla Hannon and Thembi Sudell. Say hi to them. Um, <laughs> What we'll do to begin with is we're going to go around and just have a quick few-minute spiel on, on each of us to introduce you to what we do. And we'll throw open the field pretty quickly, but um, we'll, I think we'll start to talk to some of the ideas that came out of the first two keynotes and I guess this general idea about, about how sound and the gallery entwine at the moment and maybe some future directions. And we're going to conclude the night with then be Sadell performing for you in the last half hour. But perhaps we'll go randomly between the four of us and introduce our work. And Camilla, you're looking at me, so I think perhaps you ought to go first okay. and tell us a little bit about your practice. Okay. Um, uh, my practice is I'm a field recordist and sound artist, broadcaster, radio maker, a whole bunch of stuff basically to do with sound and field recordings. I, I work primarily uh, site-specific work. I've moved a lot out of the gallery over the last 15 years of practice, um, primarily because I'm more interested in site-specific work and in the incidental nature of sound and the way in which we can create layers of reality um, through sound in site-specific contexts. Contexts. So um, to give an example of that, I think when I do field recording, I will often uh, situate myself so that I can listen both on headphones and without headphones. So that I'll record a space through headphones, through the artifice of a microphone and a recorder, but also be listening to the space in which I'm situated. So it becomes these different conversations between the real, the abstract, between where I am, where I could be, where my head's at, where my feet are. Um, yeah, that's probably sums it up. There's been quite a long list of different spaces that you've worked in. I guess the idea to convey to a listener removed from that site by then hearing what you're recording, or is, is the idea to bring people into those spaces? Um, I think for my radio work it is. For, so I just made a, a work for um, the creative audio unit for Soundproof called Inside Outside, which was about um, 
containment and how what we keep in and what we keep out both physically and culturally. So we're situated in a wildlife park in, in Darwin, outside of Darwin. We're using metaphors of gates, um, the indigenous relationship to country and also to the um, people who work at the park and also using field recordings as metaphors for that. But picking things out of the field recordings that create a sense of I suppose off kilterness. So a, a weird bird sounds like a weird bird, but it could also sound like um, something completely like an, uh, you know, a sound object in itself. So it becomes an abstraction of place, I suppose. So it's important that it's heard as a, a field recording then. Not necessarily. It could be an abstraction. So it could be just a texture or a sound or um, so to speak. Uh, yeah, it could be literal, it could be um, abstract, it doesn't... I kind of like mixing the two, yeah. And you say that over the past 15 years or so you've been gradually moving away from the gallery. Um, is that because you've been drawn to particular kinds of spaces? I suppose I want to work... There's a couple of things. I suppose um, on some levels I want to work in spaces that are incidental and that um, have audiences that aren't... Uh, necessarily literate in art and so they become almost happenstance. I'm interested in this idea of happenstance or incidental or accident or taking somebody out of the environment they expect to be in which is, uh, which is interesting to me and I think sound works very well for that uh, and it's, it's also that I don't think a lot of the time galleries are designed for, uh, for the sort of sound I want to make, you know. It's, um, sometimes it feels to me like you're fitting a, a round peg in a square hole. And I just kind of go, well, there has to be other models and I'm probably interested in investigating those models. Well, if I'm not mistaken, one of the pieces I last saw of yours was in a shop front in Perth. Uh, traces wow, of... Wow, that's, yeah. It was a little while ago now. It was a while ago. <laughs> in fact, I think your two colleagues with are Thembi. here. With Thembi and Eamon. Uh, Eamon. Who's here tonight. Um, and that seemed like the perfect way to kind of stumble upon your work in a sense. You'd travelled through the country and the remnants of this epic trip were there in a, an old shop that people could just wander into, I guess. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that work became... It was all stuff... We'd, we'd done a field recording trip through Central and um, Western Australia and South Australia the three of us and I think that trip culminated in the show in a shop front in Perth and it was really about the detri the, the what's, what's it called? Detritus. detritus that comes from those sort of trips and also from the impressions you have of a place and field recording to me often is about those impressions and about what you, you either um, take from a place. They're not necessarily documentation as such but impressions is probably a better word for me. I don't see it, I don't see field recording as a documentation per se. Yeah, I guess that's what I meant with the question, are people meant to hear them as, as a real representation of a place or that abstract kind of, it's, a, it's just a, a sound. For me, it's a bit of both, though I'm sure Eamon and Thembi would have probably a different opinion. Well, we can ask Thembi at least. Perhaps uh, we should pass the talking stick on and hear a little bit from yourself, Thembi. Uh, of course, we will hear your work in a matter of minutes time, but can you give us a little intro now to your key ideas and what you do? Okay, sure. I wrote a bit of a spiel, so I'll just um, read it out and you can interrupt me if you'd like. So my practice revolves around sampling what I just refer to as real world sounds, but 
By this, I really just mean anything that can be heard and recorded. So the palette of sounds that I draw from is really broad. It can be things like instrument textures or um, played found objects, um, field recordings or specific sounds that occur in the environment. Um, basically, it's just anything really, but I do kind of tend to focus on the um, textural nature of sound and sort of its relationship to affect. And so there are a few key features that often reoccur in my work, and these are things like, um, so ambiguity is one where it's quite difficult to tell what the source of the sound is. And then dynamics is something that I use a lot of, so there's a lot of kind of harsh cuts and slow builds and between sort of loud and soft and, um, you know, full or empty. And I kind of like playing with a sense of anticipation and suspense. And so basically my work is really quite dramatic and dark. Um, and I, I really like the depth and detail in sound as well and how it can kind of connect to or connect me to imagination or meditative states and kind of um, either shut out the world around me or change my relationship to it or make me start to perceive and hear the world in a different way. Um, and kind of all these factors I kind of use together as sort of an um, exploration of experience but things that are kind of psychological or visceral or emotional that can't really be easily understood or communicated through words. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, over the past five years, I've been working on a practice-led PhD, and this involves researching first-person madness narratives. And these are basically any texts that describe a person's own lived experience with mental illness or mental disorder or just any kind of emotional distress that has led to an interaction with the mental health system. So just keeping quite a broad definition of madness. And um, basically the aim of my research was to try and create my own first person madness narrative using quite an, this sort of abstract textural form of sound and see how that might contribute to discourse around mental illness or consumer experiences with the mental health system. Um, and through this research, I've sort of started seeing sound more as a tool to kind of um, just help me sort of extend, sorry, understand experiences that I have um, with illness in your different ways and kind of um, use sound to observe sort of my ideas or these things that are a bit difficult to describe just from a different perspective. Um, and this has really just come out of recognising some of the similarities between my sound practice and my own experiences with invisible illness. So these things like its intangibility and its ambiguity and um, just the really profound effect that it can have on the body and mind without sort of any clear objective understanding of how or why. Um, yeah, so I won't go on too much more, but at the moment I'm becoming really interested in the response to the experience of listening. So this might be my own response to, um, so my listening experience and how I kind of, uh, how that influences my thought processes and becomes part of my way of understanding the world. And then also thinking about other people's responses to the work and, and how, what they convey about their experience of listening, how that might influence my thinking or understanding of illness or any of the ideas that I'm exploring in the work. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> That's a brilliant overview. Um, a couple of things you mentioned there, which I was already really intrigued by in your work. You talk about the kind of the effect on the, the listener or the relationship you have to who's listening and maybe a, a deliberate kind of conveying of certain 
emotions, and that seems quite um, in, uh, almost rare, actually, for someone in the sound world to really be talking about a, a kind of conveying a, or transferring a deliberate kind of feel across. Yeah. How important is that idea of the, the listener and what you're expressing to them, perhaps? Well, I've kind of um, always been quite interested in not expecting the listener to, you know, understand this feeling or to convey something specific, but what is then evoked through the sound in them. And it's often very, very different depending on the listener. And that's something that really fascinates me. And I'm starting to actually collect responses from people and kind of compare and contrast what's sort of similar and what's different and the way different people create their own narratives from this sound that's really abstract. It's really fascinating. <laughs> so you're actually open to different responses to the work. You're not Absolutely, yeah. But there's, a, there's also a great sense of drama, as you mentioned in there. So it, there's a, I don't know, it seems to be setting up um, maybe likely responses, perhaps? Or? It's kind of this strange combination of being quite controlling with my sound, but also wanting to be very um, open with it as well. So in this really controlled experience, what then happens and how do different people interpret it really differently and what does that then say about the way we all perceive the world or we perceive the same experience in such different ways and yeah, I'm really interested in that kind of area. Perhaps we can throw that John Cage quote at you in a few moments' time. <laughs> yeah. Should we let sounds be themselves? Um, perhaps we'll hand over to Danae Valenza who handily has a microphone in her hand. Um, I think we have something in common besides the fact that you gave me a huge help in putting my work up, but you actually had a work in that same gallery two years ago in New, which looked stunning. I didn't see it here in the flesh, but I was blown away when I saw it. Can you maybe tell us about yourself, maybe through that work initially? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess, well, the work that was in the same gallery as yours, Julian, was um, like a baby grand piano that I modified, modified with um, 88 coloured lights. So um, that was kind of a representative of each key on the piano and you could kind of experience the uh, like performances um, in light as well as sound. Um, and I mean, it's, it's something that ha had, of course, been done before and like with, you know, the LED technology, I'm sure there's heaps of colour organs and whatever, but I kind of hope to take that a step further and then um, kind of make portraits of songs, but using long exposure photography to do that. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of like, I suppose what I was uh, kind of exploring there was this visual element to sound which runs a lot through my kind of work and um you know uh anyway um in in various ways like in through installation or video or like interpersonal connections between people making music yeah so that's a very visual work i mean it, it, it was all the lights strung up in various colors uh, quite high above the piano. Other works of yours I've seen include the portraits of hands. Is that uh, what was that going on there? Yeah, so that's that's kind of I kind of uh, wanted to restrict myself with these traditional formats of visual art, like paintings and photography and that kind of thing, um, and try and evoke some sense of sound through that. So the um, trying to maybe grapple with the immediacy that I think that you get through sound that maybe you don't get as much um, visually. So that, they were a series of prints um, using gestures um, and kind of uh, 
disembodying them from the performers uh, so you could perhaps see those gestures in a musical way or something like that, yeah. Would it be fair to say that in your work this kind of, well obviously the relationship between the look and the sound of something is there, but there's also a separation between the two? I mean, blindfolded works, for instance, or mm. the lights coming out of the piano rather than the sound? Yeah. Um, I think, actually, I, I think a lot of that comes out of maybe being a frustrated musician in a way, like, and I definitely see myself as more of a visual artist, I think, um, because I'm not necessarily using sound, but maybe more music um, because I think that it's it's interesting to use that in a as a form of communication and language um, yeah so there is that like parallel and dichotomy or whatever between the two and yeah seeing myself as primarily a visual artist but heavily interested and a great appreciator of sound and music yeah, they're obvious references to musical things like pieces or composers or musical objects like the piano. Um, so it's, it's almost talking to that as a culture, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm really interested in, um, I guess, the identity that can be formed using those, like, symbols and, like, these, these popular kind of symbols or musical symbols, you know, like, in the same way that... I think that everyone kind of, like automatically picks these musical symbols that form part of their identity and so I'm interested in reaching out to those uh, kind of things and in the same way that like I think it's kind of insane that you can put on like gold gold FM or something in the car and then sing along to it without realizing that you even know the song so kind of hopefully digging a bit deeper with those symbols and yeah through music. Thanks, Danae. And finally, in our little intro section, um, an artist who has the benefit of having just presented his work to you, so we can talk straight to that, I guess. Um, I mean, I guess kinetic sound sculpture could be one way of entering into your work, and kinetic here is often danger. <laughs> Chainsaws, whips, things that implode. Yeah. <laughs> um, Where did this come from? Well, it came from, like, um, I was pretty interested. It's, it was funny what you mentioned, actually, about being a frustrated musician. I feel like that's why I'm a sound artist, is because I'm a shitty musician. <laughs> um, but, you um, certainly mistreat guitars. <laughs> well, it's easier. Um, but, uh, but, uh, but my interest, I, I guess, like, it came from an interest in, in noise and, like, improvisation and experimental music. And, and I started to think about authentic noises being threatening ones, and um, ones which like actually can um, well, well be threatening, impose a threat on, on your person. Um, and I guess what I've been trying to do more recently has been to combine something as hostile as noise with something more forgiving like mischief. So, <laughs> so mischief is like, we, you know, is a term we use for little kids or cheating men. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's a way of like playing down something bad and so I think with so yeah the, for me it's been about combining something hostile like noise with something mischievous and forgiving so you, you know, so you can put chainsaws on the wall and people won't go fuck you you know they'll hopefully 
appreciated as art. <laughs> yeah, well, these are not just sounds of danger. I mean, they literally are dangerous situations. I was watching the row of people just at the front here, um, and I was more scared for them than for myself. Um, I mean, th these, are mo these are situations where you presumably can get quite hurt. Well, yeah, yeah, you can. And there's a great history of people getting hurt in art. Um, <laughs> um, 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 the, one of the, it was funny the way that that, well, well, Herb and I improvise every time, and it was funny the way that that performance actually turned out, because when we first met, um, I pitched this idea to Herb that I wanted to do like a, like a cover version of, um, of Shoot, um, Chris Burden's Shoot, and except maybe we, uh, we hadn't really figured it out yet, except we were maybe with a cigarette instead or something. And um, where is Herb? Yeah, he didn't like that idea. <laughs> Was he going to be shot? Or? Yeah, um, well, well, Herb raised a really interesting kind of point, though, which was that he wasn't interested in, in pursuing something like that because it was it spoke more of a different culture of whip cracking anyway. So it was the way that Herb and I met is quite interesting in itself actually. Do you want to hear, should I tell you the story? Please do. Okay. I um well I looked him up on the internet. Um, <laughs> uh, and there were there are like there are three or four representatives of the Australian Whipcrackers and Platters Association in Victoria. Most of them live in regional Victoria. And um and so the first person I called um, I was a woman, I've forgotten her name, and I asked her if she'd be available to do some whip cracking for me. And, um, and I kind of did this stupid thing where, like, you know, when you talk to people that you assume aren't artists and therefore must have no knowledge of anything to do with art, like real patronizing. So, like, I, oh, well, anyway, I called this lady and she said, Well, I'm not whip cracking anymore, I'm retired, but my 16 year old daughter's great. And I thought that's interesting, but that's maybe a different work. Um, and, and so she said, call Herb. Herb's a great guy. He's in Sunshine. He does some performances. Um, I think she even said he's a bit weird. <laughs> um, but so when I called Herb, I did the same thing. I went, you know, hi, I'm an, I'm an artist. Um, uh, you know, I'm interested in doing like a recording of you cracking whips. I think that'd be interesting to think about it as, as music and sound art. And Herb just kind of went, well, you, you realise I studied composition at the VCA in, in, in the 70s. Like, I'm very familiar with this stuff. I have a long practice of doing this. And I was like, at first I was like, what have I done? Like, <laughs> idiot. But then what was great about that was it accelerated the whole process. So instead of me, it changed the, the, the work. So now Herb and I are able to just liberally perform together in this, there's a, an established dialogue already, so it's been great. I was wondering how improvised, how choreographed that was, but I guess there's a, maybe a to and fro between the two? It's, it's almost entirely improvised. I think Herb took down a few notes today for this score. Um, um, uh, from what I saw in his notebook, it was a few jotted down things of, of particular... I wish I had the right whip-cracking language. Strokes um, and uh, techniques, I guess. But Herb can read these, and he can recognise what um, what kind of uh, stroke he's made. There um, was quite a varied set of strokes there. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, thank you so much for sort of giving us some intros uh, to your practices, which are quite diverse, but there are quite a number of overlaps. Um, I'm going to dive right in with a couple of questions, but again, if you want to ask any questions yourself about what we're talking about here, but also some of the broader ideas, just throw your hands up and I think Alison will take the roving mic around. Um, I guess we're sitting right here in the foyer of ACCA and part of what we were setting up earlier was this idea of sound in the gallery and the institution. And I'm kind of curious about your views on that. Uh, it's a broad question, but kind of, I don't know, do you feel that what you do suits this kind of environment, which after all is originally set up as a kind of visual space. So what role might sound even have to play in here? If it, is it a live art? Is it something that can be displayed in some way? Antipathies towards the gallery? You've been avoiding it, Camilla, so perhaps you should start with your answer. Um, I, thought, I thought what was interesting was what Joel was talking about in his um, mini note, keynote, about the, about the social space of the gallery. And I thought, because, you know, you come into a, a show and you're like thinking about the bleed between works and the sound kind of coming in and out. And initially it's like, oh. Often you have, as a, particularly as a practitioner, you have this idea of the purity, you know, the, 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 the best recording or the best sound or the best, you know, like, and you, it's like this holy grail that you're constantly, you know, or me, being kind of anally retentive to kind of think about. But then I think Joel's point about it being a social space and that bleed and the mix together is actually really quite lovely and kind of speaks to a, a thought that I have in my own practice about actually sound as a social practice in a lot of ways. And that, you know, I think I was talking to Thembi before about doing some sort of field recording trip with a bunch of people because sound is just so isolationist a lot of the time. You know, you're sitting in your room on your own. <laughs> I mean, and I'm quite a social person. <laughs> so I think that idea that sound in galleries can work as a social cohesive is actually pretty good. There is that kind of cliched image of the field recorders with the biggest headphones possible, completely removed from... Well, it's not a cliche. Have you seen some of the Facebook groups? Like, it's yeah. just like this gear fest, and it's like these dudes sitting in the forest going, mm, you know, with a big, you know, Zeppelin, and you just go, oh, <laughs> it is curious because you are really engaged with the sound around you, but there's also this heightened removal of yourself from that space. Like totally. A total mediation between you and it. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I kind of want to just yeah reiterate what you're saying as well. I, I love the social aspect of the gallery space. I think that, you know, it's... Um, a space where it has the potential for anything to happen but it's also a really reflective space you know like you can have performance theatre it's very welcoming to multidisciplinary kind of activities so um, that's why I kind of like the space of the gallery um, having said that though like I've done a couple of site specific works as well that have been like equally nice to just be able to work in a in a space that is that doesn't have that loaded uh, kind of white cube thing going on which you kind of struggle with sometimes you know depending on the work or whatever 
Well, we're talking about it being a social space. There's also a lot of kind of invisible layers of control in a space like this. I mean, some of them are very intentional, like the the nominal white walls of the of the space to suggest a kind of neutral emptiness. Uh, others are the the authorial questions, like who who is really who is really making those kind of decisions about what can and can't happen in the gallery? Is it high management? Is it the curator? Is the artist given the free reign? Um, so that kind of comes to me when I think about the gallery. Is these sort of there's the walls of the gallery, and then there's all these other invisible walls within that. But I think there's always going to be parameters. There's always going to be parameters you have to work with. You know, as a painter who works with oils, you're going to have to work with the texture of oil. As a sound working, a sound artist working in the gallery, you've got to because sound being about space and temporality, you've got to deal with the space. So in a, in effect, that is your 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 tool in effect in a way. So whether it's site specific or gallery specific, it's it's kind of similar, I think. Denby, I know you've worked on both sides of the equation. I mean, you do a lot of performing and recording, but you've also exhibited in galleries. Um, is one or the other kind of more of the central space for where the art happens for you? I have mixed feelings about the gallery space. So, um, and I actually haven't been doing a lot of much public presentation for a while because I've been thinking so much about context and what actually is the appropriate context. So. The gallery space is problematic in terms of the sound and acoustics and um, I actually, like I've said, I really like to control the sound that I'm working with and you can't do that very well in a space like this. Although they gave me quite a few hours this morning to, <laughs> to do my best. But, um, um, and I, but I've also been thinking about a lot about who am I trying to speak to with my work and I don't read a lot of sound theory or engage with a lot of art history and theory, I um, engage with a lot of ideas about health and illness and well-being and so I'm actually becoming more and more interested in how can I reach people who are thinking about those similar issues so not and that's not necessarily going to happen in a gallery it might a little bit but um, yeah so that's kind of starting to become more of a thought. Well, I'm sort of wondering if, if a gallery is the right space for sound uh, I mean, is there a particular reason why one would do a sound work in this kind of environment? I think too, there is a really good thing about the culture of people who come to galleries in terms of they, um, like part of the reason I use the term sound artist is because I kind of feel like I think a lot like an artist in terms of the way they talk about work. And um, So if I present in a gallery, then I'm going to receive... Um, or I'm going to create a dialogue with people who also think in a similar way. So that's sort of the good thing about the gallery space, but yeah, it'd just be nice if it had carpeted walls or something. <laughs> you want the carpeted walls. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you can more easily in a gallery break out of that sense of hierarchy between performer and listener, perhaps. I mean, in a typical performance space, that's quite implicit. Someone's on a stage or someone's in a zone for performing, and in a gallery you can sort of start to suggest and direct more uh, and, and break it out from the outset rather than have to break it down from the the suggested separation. It also kind of, um, like, I reckon a massive benefit of putting sound works in the gallery, um, particularly, like, object-based ones like your own and, like, um, Anas and Hamas, um, is that the, it gives an opportunity in that environment for the, for the, the objects to perform rather than, say, on a, on a stage where maybe we would perform. Um, so that's, that's something I like to do that's the, like 
obviously, you, you, well, many of, of us, I'd say. Um, yeah, that's, I think, I think that's, that, that, that's the main thing which I actually really enjoy about the gallery context is, the, is that you can, yeah, just, just have, the, have the objects do the performing for you. And sure, there's a sacrifice for um, quality and bleed and stuff like that, but um, it depends on the purpose of the work, I guess. Is that partly because the gallery is still, despite all the live art and the sound and the, the bleed, is still a space for objects? for the display of things. Totally. Well, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> right on, man. <laughs> I'm looking at the time, and I think we probably have to sort of open up the field pretty quickly. Uh, if you have questions for our artists here, um, or indeed broader questions from earlier discussions, now would be the time to ask them. I saw one. <laughs> <laughs> Any hands going up? Burning questions. Um, I can't remember your name, but I'm looking Eric at Demetrio. you. Eric Demetrio. Yeah, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> um, what's your selection process for your sound objects? I'm going to call them that you use in your performance. Selection. Did you say selection? Selection process. Oh. Um, well, it depends on. T well, today's today's selection. Is based on was mainly based on on humour, so like so so things so objects which kind of, um, you know like balloons and duck calls and things like that, and bed bedpans are a bit funny I guess. Um, Thought they were bedpans. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where Herb got them from actually. <laughs> Must be a bedpan shop know. somewhere. But that's a big thing is 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 picking the object. It's like sometimes I'll even pick an object way more for how it looks than how it how it sounds. Do you check its um, sound-making ability before you would bring it in here? Sure, yeah, yeah, I, I, I would. Is, is there, how much, to what extent do you do that or is part of the performance an investigation into the sounds that that object makes? Well, as far as the performance goes, I'd usually select, I'd select it already and then improvise in the, um, but, but yeah, there have been times where I've been like, damn, that looks really good, but sounds terrible. I guess I'll have to cull that. Or the opposite, like, um, wait, what's the opposite of that? The opposite. Looks, bad. Something looks, looks bad. good. Looks bad, sounds looks bad. great. <laughs> yeah. Looks bad, sounds bad. Yeah, cancels itself out. So yeah, out. there's a bit of a selection. Yeah, yeah, I do think about that a lot, actually. It's, it's, um, I also like the idea of how sound can animate an object. So like, that's, that's um, so yeah, that's considered. I guess if an object makes a sound, it is animated, right? Like it, it is well, yeah, literally the sound it, of it. Yeah, I guess. Brought into life. But you can also animate another object with a sound. You know, like. Um, no examples. Yes, give us an example. <laughs> <laughs> examples. Well, there's true animation, I guess, which is. Yeah. We have a, another question over here, Roz. I just wanted to know if you wanted to perform with your beautiful sonic notation again that you've made. I know that this isn't the first time such a sound as consequence has become a beautiful sonic blue pulse. But since we're in a gallery, I'd just like to open it up to, you know, where we have value and what is worth and what is the process of, um, you know, indeterminate sonic art as notation, putting it back in the gallery where they sell visual objects. So it's about the eco economics of sound within the... Uh, the future of the work behind you and what it might be worth if you had a valuation by 
Christie's or if there was anyone here who would like to you know, buy it for $2 million or perform with it tomorrow or... I'm just putting it out there about <laughs> we've got, got to price. this point now and what's the consequence of the consequence? That's what I'm asking. Well, sadly, ACCA doesn't collect work, so otherwise it would just... Well, it's probably going to be collected because it's there, right? <laughs> Forced collection. Um, well, it is an interesting question. I mean... Let's throw to an auction. An auction? Yeah. Well, yes. Sure. Uh, Herb could actually... Very strongly, I hope. <laughs> Do I see hands reaching for wallets? <laughs> um, yeah, Herb, what do you think? Because I know, uh, um, well, and I know Herb thinks about it a, a much like a, a lot as a as a score. Which, I mean, I definitely do too. But it's but it's probably easier. Probably has a lot more meaning for for Herb. Herb, what do you reckon? Thank you, Eric, and thank you, Ros Band. If it hadn't have been for Ros Band with our first sound playground many moons ago in Brunswick, where we uh, invite the general public to play music and make sounds and appreciate the environment that they're in. I think Ros has a valid point. We've d I've done these performances before where I've arguably made a wind chime in front of people and then auctioned it off at the end. Uh, much to my dismay, it didn't meet the uh, reserve price, <laughs> which I'd already calculated and the accountant had calculated on a normal system of society's value for any one particular work. What you see before you is in fact a musical score that would have gone down rather well in the 70s, but because my name isn't up there in lights, Perhaps you don't have a value for it. The question that I'm asking you, what do you value your own time and your own input in life? And if you express yourself in any one form, today we, Eric and I have expressed us, ourselves physically and you're physically in this space. The representation of time in a possible score is behind you. We've been in a gallery before where the curator had suggested yes and we made the technical terms at the beginning and the legal aspects, how long will the work last in the gallery? And then it was whitewashed the next day. Art, I think, is still rather delicate in this country and needs to be taken seriously. As Ros pointed out just before, Ros performs all over the world, as you quite well know, I hope you do, and she has written and been an author and a leader in art forms within Australia, especially in sound works. And thank you, Ros, for having it up there. It's up for grabs. <laughs> I don't think we'll be able to take it home, but if anyone has any money... <laughs> we need a rip a whip Please, out. you know, you can donate it to your charity. Uh, 
anyway, that's just really a joke. It's up there just to represent real time. And uh, so thank you for watching. It is uh, really interesting to sort of take thought experiments around where you put value in, a, I guess, a performing art or a ephemeral time-based art. Um, and I guess in the industry of selling music, even that's changed so radically in the last decade and a bit, um, it seems so slippery as to where you actually put the monetary value. I guess it's a service and a good, perhaps, in the GST kind of triangle. <laughs> I, you've all had experience of selling work, I, I presume. No. Can I just... <laughs> no. I think that's the freedom with being working in sound a lot of the time is that you don't make any money from it. You kind of work outside this, the, the whole capitalist structure because there's no way you can be a capitalist in sound art. It just doesn't fit because you can't make any money. So I think but that's extremely liberating. I think you work in another paradigm. I mean, perhaps I'm just, my work just doesn't, you know, I don't make work to sell, so it's, um, yeah, I think that's awesome. I don't want to, you know, like, it's, I, my partner is a visual artist and I find it's quite constraining, you know, you're thinking about commercial gallery spaces, you're thinking about what work sells, you, you know, you're constantly market driven and... I mean, music can be extremely market driven. I mean, the act of appearing on a stage, if you're famous and popular enough, is, you know, generating a huge income for just doing an action, a set of actions in, in time. What about the idea of like when um, you, and this is a question to everyone, is like when you make a, have you ever thought about like trying to make a commodity of your, of your work and like have you felt like it would be a cop out to do that or like it just shouldn't be done or, because I, I have and like I've never, I've never really followed through with it but I, I wonder if I can, it would be... Can, can I just yeah. um, well, um, I guess with, the, with like taking photos and stuff that could be seen as commodifiable um, of the piano, but I think that um, where maybe I'm more of a sound artist and less of a visual artist is, is um, how, how I would like to prioritise the experience rather than the thing at the end. So, like, for me, if, if someone was to buy a work or whatever, or, like, this is, is kind of a token of the experience yeah. for me rather than, like, I, th I think that... That's not the yeah. work in a sense. It's yeah, you know. The, the, I mean, and who knows where you'll take it. Like, it could yeah. go heaps of different places. But... Um, I think that's where the richness and the commodity comes from. It's like the commodity of experience in sound works. That's a good answer. One interesting thing, I guess, in, that I've just noticed if I've been invited to do something in a, um, a higher tier institutional space is that the, the money seems to be more in the public program side of things than the, the other bits of the gallery. So in that sense, your literal actions in time and space are perhaps valued uh, in a different kind of system than the objects you might be putting in the space. <laughs> we have a question here. And then we're in your hands, Alison, about time. Where, where was it? Just over oh, here in the second room. One more question after this. Are there any values that are still translated through the ideals of the, cl like the classical avant-garde slash minimalism? Like, does it have a place in sound art today? 
Mm, uh, which which dimension? Like which which bit of it? So like the way that you would aesthetically analyze uh, a piece of music. Like, do you think of your construction under the terms of composition, or is it just like is it just a stream of consciousness? I mean, I, I have had a, you know, quite a sort of rigorous training in classical music notation, working with musicians who have spent 20 years or more practicing very, very specific skills. Um, I see it now as part of a toolbox, uh, just a way of, well, both a way of understanding a language that I can use to speak to people um, and invite them to do things with me, um, but also perhaps more than that, a kind of very fine uh, understanding of how to break down sound in different ways. So I, I can use some vertical ways of breaking it down or horizontal ways, or I can think about more traditional things like rhythm and harmony, uh, which just is an, an added set of perceptual tools or um, practical tools when creating a work. Um, and yeah, I guess that kind of quite formalist background in learning how to do things that are a bit removed from context, like um, what's this kind of chord configuration going to sound like, followed by that. Um, yeah, I guess, I don't know, I, I think less about that now myself, but it still feels like there's some useful things in there in terms of an oral understanding of things around you. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this kind of, this kind of field. I mean, have you had backgrounds in notation in a more traditional sense? I guess you work a little with that in your work, Danae. Yeah, um, I, I often collaborate with musicians that are um, better musicians than I am, and I really appreciate that. Um, but I think, like, it's also the thing that I can maybe bring to it is something that perhaps the avant-garde um, of the 60s or 70s, like, I don't want to put myself up there or anything, but, like, is a sense of naivety in play that you can then kind of bring other people together and and use that to kind of provoke a work or something like that. And just like the curiosity, I think. Um, and I think that that still exists now and is important. And um, well, I'm sure Joel could uh, speak a bit of this of some of the artists that he's uh, curated into liquid architecture in the last couple of years. There has been this quite interesting undercurrent of uh, a heightened playfulness and conceptual thinking, even classical music, which has been really interesting to see. It didn't seem to be the case when I was studying. It felt very like conceptual is bad so yeah one more question I think and then we we really need to pass on to Thembi for the conclusion of our night lucky last hi Gillian um, I just wanted to ask you a question about um, the work you did at GOMA and um, with supercritical mass and maybe um, yeah you could expand on your ideas around relational aesthetics and the territorialization of space within that context and how you responded, if that's relevant, which I assume that it is. Uh, yeah, so the quick background is, is that I have this ongoing project called Supercritical Mass. You saw a couple of images in my talk earlier, uh, which is it's trying to talk to three paradigms and the, talk to that overlapping space between them. One is the social dimension, so the uh, bringing together of, of communities from scratch who will then undertake some actions through some workshops, um, and the idea being that the ensemble itself will structure the action, so it's about the interconnection between those people. Um, another dimension is the space, so they're then articulating a particular kind of environment, whether it's a gallery or a 
park or lakeside or whatever it might be. And the particular sonic methodology is using dispersed identical points of sound, which could be very simple objects like um, gold coins, bits of paper, whole stack of A4 sheets of paper, uh, ceramic bowls have become a new favorite object of ours, through to more musical objects like flutes, saxophones, and so forth. That's almost a little bit in the early years for us in this project because we're trying to open it out to anyone who wants, who, who throws in the, the intent to be involved and to minimize the barriers of entry because the complexity will come out of the interaction anyway. Don't need that extra level of, um, of a flute or a sax. And we just wrapped up on a, a sort of a year and a half's worth of thinking on a big project over the weekend in Brisbane with about 100 of these handbells, actually from here in Melbourne, the Federation handbells, which are yours to hire from um, uh, the museum here. So yeah, that to me is, is one kind of um, taught package that talks to several of the concerns I raised earlier, space, the social dimension of sound, um, and a particular sonic framework for that. With that, I think we should thank our excellent panel, who are once again Eric Demetrio, Danae Valenza, Camilla Hannon, and Thembi Sidel. Now, time has escaped from us, but we do have this one final part of the evening, so we'll be going a little over our seven o'clock finish. Um, but this is our final performance for the night, which is one of our panellists, Thembi Sidel. And the work that she'll be presenting uh, has a few elements. I can list the, the artists that she's drawn from in the work that you'll hear. Uh, they include Alice Hu-Sheng Chang, voice, Jim Denley, flute, Samuel Dunscombe, clarinet, Emma Fox, voice, Cat Hope, electric bass, and Marty Kay, field recording. And I guess this puts into action the kind of ideas that Thembi described earlier. So I think we're largely staying put and letting this part of the evening flow on. Right, if you're, yeah, maybe if you're in the first few rows, you want to sort of just move back from the speakers a little.